Morning, Glory America. It is Friday, August the 3rd, 2018, and we are in the middle of a fight for the future of the Supreme Court. And I have been using this hour, the last radio hour of the week, the Hillsdale Dialogue, as it is known, for the past few weeks to talk with professors at Hillsdale, Professors Carrington and Marino, about the future of the Supreme Court. And we're continuing on in that series today with the help of Ronald Pistrito. Dean Pistrito is the... uh, the big boss of the uh, graduate school uh, up at uh, Claremont. He is a professor of politics, the Charles and Lucia Shipley Chair in American Constitution, and an administrative law expert. And we're going to make you understand what that is. You will be made to understand administrative law because this is the first time I've ever actually talked to anyone other than myself who has taught administrative law on the show. So, Dean, welcome. It's good to have you. Good morning. You know, you're you're risking your audience by uh, by bringing up the topic of administrative law so early in the morning. But, I know they but, need uh, to know I'm all for it. They need to know. And the administrative state, this is the perfect setup. The administrative state struck back at Brett Kavanaugh yesterday. I want to read you a Washington Post piece by my friend Sung Min Kim. The National Archives said Thursday, note that we attribute to an agency the ability to speak. The National Archives said Thursday it will not be able to produce the full cache of documents requested by the Senate and Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh until the end of October. But Republicans indicated they would press ahead with plans to hold the confirmation hearings next week. Gary Stern, the Archive General Counsel, told Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Grassley in a letter that the records Grassley has requested Requested could total more than 900,000 pages. And please note that we will not be able to complete our review of all the records that you have requested by August 15th. What do you make of that, by the way? And there are 3,000 employees of the National Archives, by the way. Well, I think, unfortunately, the the, the confirmation process, uh, you know, is, is really much more political than it is about serious review of of judicial qualifications, and then, as you know, that that goes all the way back to the Bork hearings, where where Judge Bork made the mistake of actually being forthright in the way that he he answered questions. And um, you know, given given the environment right now, I really I really think that uh, that one side is interested in simply holding up the nomination as as uh, by any means that that are available to them, and and uh, I think that's. I think they need to do that for the sake of their base and their fundraising and the midterm elections and all of that. And uh, I don't I don't actually make much of it. I think Kavanaugh is going I think the Republicans will press ahead. I think that Kavanaugh will be confirmed. Uh, and I think this is this is a lot of noise, to be honest. Now, a lot of people are coming out of their chairs or swerving their cars on the road to say one one word, Garland, or maybe two words, Merrick Garland. And they are apoplectic that you and I are saying the Republicans are just going to blow off the archives, they're going to blow off the rules, they're just going to move forward because they have the majority. But Dean Pistrito, that's what the Constitution says. It is what the Constitution says. The, you know, the, the answer to that is that, that the other party should win some more Senate elections. The consent of the Senate is, is required uh, in the appointment of Supreme Court judges and if the Democrats were in control of the Senate back when Judge Garland were nominated, he'd be on the Supreme Court right now, but they were not. And this is a republic, and elections matter, and, and that's uh, that's how it goes. And if they get control of the Senate, 
in January because of the elections which will be held in November, that will be the end of Republican judicial nominees. They're just going to shut it down. And I have no doubt in my mind. And by the way, that would be legitimate. It would be a political issue in the year 2020. But the Senate is given that power. I'm going to come to the administrative state in a moment, but I, I, I know you know your Constitution. I like to emphasize this to people. It's not a difficult document. It was intended to be read by farmers. It was intended to be read by yeomen. They knew what they were voting for, and they were voting for a Senate that would get to choose who the judges were. Well, I, I, I said for years when, uh, when you had Democratic nominees uh, that I wondered why Republican senators uh, had been so compliant when it was obvious that the nominees had very uh, radical judicial philosophies. Uh, and it seems to me that you know, the Democrats have taken uh, much greater advantage of, uh, quite frankly, of, of the Constitution and of the Senate's role in consenting to judicial appointments than the re- Republicans have. And so uh, I think it's, the, the Senate was given an essential function here and uh, they're simply exercising their constitutional duty. Now, there are flashpoints in the proceedings surrounding every Supreme Court nominee, which typically go to the social issues of the day. Previously, gay marriage, currently uh, reproductive rights and abortion. But you and I both know that the hidden hand here is about the administrative state what it is, and who's going to run it. So I want to step back for a moment, since this is your wheelhouse. You've written American progressivism. You have written Woodrow Wilson and the Roots of Modern Liberalism. You have written about uh, the, uh, the legacy of the founding and challenges to the founding. Would you just take a moment and explain to people what the administrative state is and why it is not a, quote, deep state? It is an administrative state. Sure. Uh, you know, I think most simply the, the, the term refers to the fact that so much policy uh, that, is, that is made today, so the vast majority of the big policies that we talk about uh, are often not really enacted by the people's elected representatives in the legislature. They are, uh, the, these policies are made by unelected, life-tenured bureaucrats who serve in, in administrative agencies. Uh, and if you, you think, about, think about some of the major policies we, we've debated of, of late, uh, the, you know, the, the, health, the various regulations regarding Obamacare, uh, many of the specific policies are not, don't pertain to the law itself. They come out of the health and human services regulations that are made or the environmental uh, debates that we have about greenhouse gas. We, we haven't passed a major environmental law since uh, the 1970s uh, when, the, when we had the Clean Air Act. Uh, although it was amended in the early 90s. The policies you're talking about are are made by regulations. And so uh, even though we have this republic and we have our constitution, as you mentioned, that that tells us, you know, Congress makes the law, and and that's that's how this works. Those members of Congress are accountable to voters. By and large, uh, most of the policy that's made is not directly accountable to voters because the agencies make it. And and that, I think, is, is the the basic fact that I think more and more people are aware of these days, but still there's, there's not enough light shined on that. The Congress doesn't really legislate very much, and so elections matter less and less. Uh, and that's what I think leads people into this kind of conspiracy talk about deep state. You know, they think there's, there's some kind of unaccountable entity out there. And, and it's true that there is, but, it's, but it just comes from this basic fact that Congress has delegated a lot of its 
lawmaking power to the administrative agencies. And it's, it's also simply a question of size. There are 2,711,000 employees of the federal government. And I want that to sink in. 2,711,000 people work for Uncle Sam. They are not teachers. They are not policemen. They are not firemen, though there are among those 2,711,000 people, some who are teachers, for example, in the Indian Service Bureau that, that takes care of schools on reservations. There are some who are firefighters who are at this very moment risking their lives. But generally, those 2,711,000 people are not the people that you and I associate with government, right, uh, Dean? No, they're they're uh, most of those most of the types that we associate with government are the are the government officials we would normally come into contact with in our in ordinary lives. Those are mostly state and most often local yep. local officials. Yep. Uh, you're talking federal federal employees here. Yep. And there are six hundred thousand of them are in the postal service, so we know where six hundred thousand of the two point seven million are. But at those other two point one million people who are doing things that you and I have to deal with every day, and we, we really aren't aware of where they live and what they do and under what authority they do it, but they do impact us, I think, probably on a daily basis. Very, very significantly, and this is, um, you know, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to pick up on my, my previous point, uh, you mentioned the size, of course, of, of, you know, this group of federal employees, and in a way, that's that was necessitated by the, historically, by the, by the New Deal and the various expansions of the role of the federal government in the in the 20th and now into the 21st century, right? As as the government gets itself into into more uh, uh, slices of American life, Congress can't make enough rules to manage all that on its own, not even close. And so all of these agencies uh, are, are kind of created coming out of the 30s and going forward as a way of implementing the policies of the New Deal, the policies of, of the Great Society. Uh, and so, you know, in, in a way, we have kind of necessitated uh, uh, the, the kind of punting of a lot of legislative authority to these agencies. And that's where this area of administrative law that, that I know you know very well, but that's where this area of administrative law comes in. Uh, how are those agencies supervised? How are they governed in the way that they behave? And the Supreme Court sits atop them in ways that are important and enduring. And we'll talk about Brett Kavanaugh's role in the reigning in of these agencies when I come back with Dean Pistrito from Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are located at hillsdale.edu, including courses by Dean Pistrito on the administrative state. Go over there, sign up for Imprimus. All of my previous conversations with you for hillsdale.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. That music means it's the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last radio hour of the week is when we go high. The rest of the news business goes low. We go high at the uh, Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio, West Coast. I'm joined from Michigan by Dean Ronald Pistrito. He is the dean of the politics, Van Andel Graduate School of Statesmanship, uh, and the professor of politics, the Charles and Lucia Shipley Chair in American Constitution. He is an expert in administrative law. He's a lot more fun than Larry Arnn. But then again, everybody is. Uh, Dean, let's let's talk for a moment. I, uh, right before the break, we're talking about the 2.7 million people. They make, they range from GS1s who make $18,785 up to senior executive service employees who make $179,000 a year. So no one is actually making billions or millions or even hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this. But they are busy doing their jobs 
which is to control the lives of other Americans. Am I, am I fi- is that a fair thing to say? Uh, well, I, I think you can get there ultimately. You know, the, the, the thing I like to uh, remind folks, we talk about the administrative state, is in a way, um, I, think, I think the blame lies more with the, the legislature, with Congress, than it, is with, than it does with these administrators, because these agencies are the creatures of Congress. Congress is the, uh, the institution that has decided to create them, uh, that, that has... Uh, expanded the scope of the federal government and has come to rely on these on these agencies and often gives them in, impossible missions. So you take, for example, take something like uh, uh, clean air legislation. You have a, an extremely vague law like the Clean Air Act, and and uh, Congress wants to get credit for voting for clean air, and so they they enact this law which basically says we we hereby decree that there shall be clean air, and we're going to set up this agency, and we're going to leave these bureaucrats with the responsibility of making the tough decisions and regulations to, to make it happen. Uh, and so Congress you know, has the advantage of punting to the agencies the, the difficult task of picking winners and losers, of, of making tough decisions. And so uh, in, in a way, I, I point the finger not so much at the, at the bureaucracies themselves, which I don't like any more than, than you do, uh, but, at, but at Congress, who, who uh, the, the agencies are... are uh, our, our creature of Congress. Exactly, exactly right. And, and when the Constitution was designed in 1787 and ratified in 1789, there was nothing in Washington. There was a river. Now there is the Department of Agriculture, Commerce, Defense, Education, Energy, Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, Housing and Urban Development, the Interior Department, Justice Department, Labor Department, State Department, Department of Transportation, Department of the Treasury, Department of Veteran Affairs, and I don't even want to go into the agencies, boards, and various commissions and bureaus. It is vast, Dean. Vast. And I this this jungle of regulations that Congress has punted to, every day it flows out of Washington like an avalanche down on ordinary Americans. And when the Republic began, no one dared think of telling you where to build your farmhouse or what river on which to stake your tent. Well, and and, and the Republicans, I, I, I think, uh, have lately come to, uh, to realize... Uh, I think far too late, uh, the significance of the facts that you are describing, you know, as, as, uh, especially when uh, in the Obama administration, when the Republicans won back control of Congress and it was clear that the president wasn't going to get his, his legislative agenda through, he turned to the agencies and he turned to essentially making law without Congress. And what the Republicans came to, to realize, you're too late, uh, is that, of course, the apparatus had been in place for decades that very much allowed the the executive to do that, essentially to, to, to legislate without congressional warrant. And so many of the controversial Obama-era policies were done admi- administratively. Uh, and that's why we've now turned to the courts to try to rein in the agencies. But the, le- the legal structure has for decades, as you know, because you teach administrative law, uh, has really been one that's been very favorable to giving the agencies a very long leash. Uh, so long, in fact, that when we come back from break, R.J. Pastrito, the dean of the uh, graduate school at Hillsdale and I, will look over something known as the Chevron Doctrine. It sounds like going to the gas station, but it's a lot worse than that. The Chevron Doctrine is, in fact... 
Uh, the manacle that, that links us all to this vast bureaucracy we're talking about. Dean Pastrito is my guest from the Graduate School at Hillsdale College. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu. All of these conversations at you for Hillsdale. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Brett Kavanaugh's front and center when we return. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. That, of course, from Hamilton, talking about the room in which it happens and when Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison got together together to do the deal. They were not talking about administrative agencies, but I am with Dean R.J. Pistrito from the graduate school at Hillsdale College. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dean, when the framers got together, they really never intended for this vast federal bureaucracy to exist. And so the rules governing it came along later in something called the Administrative Procedures Act, which is an act of Congress And then in the authorizing legislation for every one of these agencies, what did we lose sight of along the way? Well, I think you're uh, you're right to start with the founders, of course, always. And uh, you're certainly right about their lack of intention for the situation we have today. Although, of course, the Federalists were no shrinking violets about federal administrative power. They wanted a, a vigorous administration within constitutional boundaries. And so... That's really the place to start. I mean, you, you talk about the agencies, and, and they're governed by Article One and Article Two of the Constitution. Article One is the, the article that, that uh, vests the legislative power. And the major question there is, is Congress still making the law? Right? That's, that's, uh, you know, that's what we look at when we bring up Article One questions. Uh, or, or you know, is, is it the case that so much discretion has been given to the agencies that now the agency, the executive agency, is making the law instead of Congress. So that's one major area of, of legal question. The other major area is Article Two, uh, which which sets up the executive branch. And remember uh, that Article Two gives all the executive power to the president. And so you have these agencies, and they've got to be constitutionally somewhere in some branch, and they're obviously in the executive branch. But the question becomes, how much control then does the president have over the agencies? Because remember, the presidency, the only one who's elected. And is there enough uh, uh, power, you know, because Congress has wanted over the years for these agencies to be more and more independent of the president. And so it's another set of constitutional questions, right? Is there enough presidential control? And Judge Kavanaugh has actually written a lot about that. Uh, but you're right to cite the, the Administrative Procedure Act. and It was enacted in the 1940s, was enacted to tighten uh, controls on agency procedures. Uh, but this was greatly weakened by by court interpretations, especially in the in the 1970s. And in the course of this um, long extended growth of the federal government, there came to be known something as the Federal Register. And the Federal Register used to be a staple of the great one, Ronald Reagan's every stump speech. He would talk about how long it was and what it meant and how every day and every way all of these agencies would put out notices of comment and rulemaking in which they would propose to take actions. They would give the public 60 days to comment, sometimes 90. They would take in those comments. They would allegedly review them, and then they would put forward a rule which would then bind the people under force of law. For example, the Endangered Species Act, if they listed a species, and 60 days later it was put on the act, if you touched that species, you would go to jail for a year. Most Americans had no idea this was going on, and that's one example, uh, uh, Dean, of all of this vast apparatus. How in the world does Brett Kavanaugh's nomination bear upon this massive behemoth, the Leviathan that we have created? 
Well, it, it's funny you mentioned the Federal Register. I, I always start my administrative law classes by just showing my, my classes some examples of the Federal Register. That's a good way to hold down the number of students. <laughs> exactly. You got that right. So I have my own self-interest there. Uh, you're very perceptive. But, uh, you know, with, with regard to, to, to Kavanaugh, uh, I, I would just make I think the following thing is the most important uh, point here. He's in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and and the vast majority of administrative law cases in this country go through the D.C. Circuit. It's kind of like a mini Supreme Court for administrative uh, uh, kinds of cases, uh, because all the agencies are there in D.C., or most of them. And so he has had uh, opinions on a lot of critical cases uh, dealing with administrative agencies. And the important point is that his reasoning on some very important cases, even when he's, he himself may have been in, in the minority and on the D.C. Circuit, his reasoning has later been adopted by the Supreme Court in, in the few big administrative law cases that it hears. And so uh, it, uh, yeah, I think he, he really is someone who can be, who can be influential. Well, when the D.C. Circuit got going, the, the, the original Federal Judiciary Act provided for circuit courts, and the D.C. Circuit is the smallest one. It only has 12 judges. I clerked on it. I clerked on it in the great era of Ginsburg, Scalia, Starr, Bork. They were all on there. Spots, Robinson. They were all there. And I worked for Judge McKinnon, Judge Robb, and, and they would... They would patrol the fences. That was their job, was to make sure that the agencies were doing their job. But along came this doctrine, the Chevron Doctrine. Would you explain to people what it is and how it cabins the ability of the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court to actually do anything? Sure, and it's it's always astounding to me that that now the Chev something like the Chevron doctrine is the topic for you know popular political discussion. It's a sign of where where things have gone in the country. But Chevron refers to a, a case in in uh, you know, Chevron v. NRDC from the uh, from ni- 1980s, where uh, the, it was a question of whether an agency had essentially had acted within the bounds of the law that, that Congress made, and. Um, when Congress makes law, as you know, uh, usually it's a, they're very they're, they're vague, they're ambiguous, and agencies have to figure out what these vague things mean and then put them into policy. And so, uh, what the Chevron Doctrine did is, is said basically, look, when an agency makes policy that comes from an interpretation of a law, uh, the reviewing court, if that if that agency decision is challenged, the reviewing court is to give great deference to the agency's interpretation of the law instead of starting fresh with its own legal interpretation. And what, what that means is you know, anytime someone wants to hold an agency accountable and try to keep it within the boundaries of the law, as you've said, they kind of start off behind when they go into court because the, the court is deferring to the agency. And, and that's why as the agencies have become more and more robust, especially under the Obama administration, uh, all of a sudden, people have discovered we don't have a very good legal environment to to handle these these kinds of situations, and it's why you started to see more and more skepticism among some of the justices about so-called Chevron deference. Uh, and as you know, there's a related kind of deference with regard to agencies when they make their own regulations uh, that that also creates a lot of trouble. There. And what I want to communicate to people is when we say the agency, we're not talking about some some conference room in Washington where 
people with oversized brains sit around and monitor the world with a, an amazing amount of precision. They're, it's not the control room at the Pentagon. We're actually talking about, for example, in the case of the EPA, they have nine regions. And in those nine regions, they have various offices. And in those various offices, they have GS1s through 4s. And those GS1s through 4s are stamping papers that they frequently misplace, they do not act upon, and they don't return your phone call. And there's simply no way to get accountability. So you call your congressman who then calls the agency who can't find the file, and they say, start over. And when you go to court to try and get someone to do their job, they're told... You can't make them. It's not ripe. And when it does become ripe, you've got to defer to them. It is actually, I, I, I don't even I think I can, can communicate to people the frustration that goes with 30 years of dealing with this, uh, Dean. And I've well, done it I for add, 30 can years. I add a, can Go. I add a, another scarier part to that? Please. Uh, if, you, if you follow the logic of this, right, where do agencies get their authority? How, do we, how can an agency, say like the Environmental Protection Agency, if a question comes up, do we have the power to actually do something? Well, that comes from an interpretation of the law that creates the agency, so the Clean Air Act. So the agency goes back to the Clean Air Act and says, in our read of this law, how much power do we have? Well, when you bring the Chevron doctrine into that question, think about what it means. It means the court defers to the agency's understanding of the law. Yes. The court defers to the agency's own understanding of the extent of its own powers, that the agencies are deferred to when the question is, how much power do they have over you and me? And it is a scary, scary uh, doctrine. Now, the good news is something began to develop in the last 10 years called the major rule doctrine. Now, why don't you expand on that to people? Because it's the first breath of fresh air, the first rustling of the leaves of freedom inside the agencies. It is, and and, uh, I think it's appropriate to bring that up uh, in the context of talking about Judge Kavanaugh, because he was one of the uh, primary proponents of this this way of limiting Chevron. Uh, He has been in some of the opinions that he's written on the D.C. Circuit. And the idea is you, you take this whole Chevron situation, which we've been talking about, and you get a really big policy question, right? Uh, did Congress intend to give the Food and Drug Administration the power to regulate tobacco? Uh, or did Congress intend to give to the IRS the power to make a very controversial policy coming out of Obamacare, as was the case in the King v. Burwell case from a couple of years ago? Uh, and what the, the courts have said uh, on occasion now is when we get to that kind of a big question, they said, wait a minute, there's no way Congress could have intended for an agency to take an ambiguous law and make this big of a policy decision. There's no way they could have intended for the agency to do this. And so they've created what, what, has, what is now referred to as a kind of major questions exception to the otherwise ordinary situation where courts are going to defer to agencies. Uh, and so, for example, in the big Obamacare case, when uh, uh, Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts upheld and, you know, the IRS understanding of Obamacare, uh, he refused to invoke Chevron. He took a fresh look at the law himself. In my view, he, he got the law wrong, but at least he didn't defer to the agency. And he basically said, look, there's no way Congress meant for the IRS to make this decision, and so I'm going to take a fresh look at the law myself. And so you're right, that, that's a bright light, and it's an example of where the Supreme Court 
really has adopted some of Judge Kavanaugh's reasoning. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about how Brett Kavanaugh, if he is confirmed as we expect him, will move the court along with Justice Gorsuch and the three other center-right judges, including the Chief Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, to a new doctrine of responsibility for the administrative state when we come back. Welcome back, America. 51 minutes after the hour from the ReliefFactor.com studio on the West Coast, headed to Oregon today. But the Hillsdale Dialogue today has been fascinating with Dean R.J. Pastrido of Hillsdale, where he runs the graduate school. We're talking about administrative law and Brett Kavanaugh. The very first case, if he's confirmed by October that he will hear, Dean, will have to do with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service designation of critical habitat. Now, I've been doing this for 30 years. This is dart throwing at its best. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're making up stuff left and right. They're just pulling stuff out of their back pocket and say, we think the Stevens kangaroo rat was here and the gnatcatcher was there and the tiger salamander was there and they designate critical habitat and it destroys the value of land. And what will it matter if Brett Kavanaugh goes on to the court and starts looking at things like critical habitat? How does the law change, do you think? Well, I think like anything in the in the Roberts court era, first of all, uh, Changes are going to be incremental, and that's, I think, is true of areas outside of administrative law as it is in areas of administrative law. Uh, but Judge Kavanaugh would, would join a kind of growing momentum on the Supreme Court. There, there's just been a lot of questions from a lot of the other judges lately, and not, not, not only the, the so-called conservative judges, about some of the doctrines that, that we've been talking about. And not only in the area that, that, that we've spent some time talking about this morning, the Chevron area and, and you know, courts deferring to uh, how agencies interpret laws, but also even, even more fundamentally in sort of looking at the structure of agencies and, and asking the question, you know, how, how accountable are these agencies? Is this, is this a setup that actually works in a, in a constitution that's supposed to ultimately be, be accountable to the, to the people, where you have agencies... Who's, who, you have these people making very significant decisions that affect life and property, and they're, they're not under the control or they're under very indirect control of somebody who's actually voted on yeah. uh, by, by, by the citizens. And Judge Kavanaugh has been very active uh, on that question, and, and in particular with the agency that came out of the Dodd-Frank law, the, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, uh, there's been a major question, of the, the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, of course, uh, there's been a major question about, it. is this agency actually constitutional? You have this single head, uh, and the single head is not removable by the president, uh, except for extreme cause. And so the question is, how, how accountable is an agency like this to the voters if the and, president can't control it? And Justice Willett, uh, now Judge Willett and others, uh, Judge Ho down in the Fifth Circuit, have, have raised the same question about the Federal Housing Agency and whether or not it's constitutionally comprised. Here's where I think I might be a little bit more optimistic than you. Because the Supreme Court operates on the rule of four, it takes four judges to bring up a case to vote cert. I believe Chief Justice Roberts has deferred to Justice Kennedy for many years about what they would bring forward and set the agenda. They're down to 60 to 70 cases a year. Now that he's got five votes, I think you might see the Roberts court go into third gear here. What, do you think I'm just crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy. I, I, think, I think you're more optimistic than I am. Uh, I've, I've 
John Roberts worries me. Uh, I think I've got uh, some good uh, uh, evidence to, to back that concern up. Um, and, I, you know, I just think the the approach, uh, you know, for instance, there's, there's a as there always is with a Supreme Court nomination, there's a lot of focus on abortion and major issues like that. And, and you know, the history of the Roberts Court has been, you know, incremental death by a thousand cuts. I think they've been doing that with the administrative state. You could be right. It could be because they've got to get the five votes. Uh, and um, that, 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 that you could be right about that. And, and Justice Kennedy was so bad on this stuff. The Rapanos decision, which I'm sure you teach, the classic example of making a bad situation worse by adding even more ambiguity to an agency's approach, right? Now well, that it, might change. It might change, and, and I think where, where Justice Kennedy did a lot of damage, although he also uh, expressed skepticism, although I suppose it would depend, you know, what side of the bed he woke up on in the morning, um, where he did a lot of damage is when you got into an area where, you know, it was a sort of a hot-button issue, um, he would tend to go for the politically correct uh, decision as opposed to uh, following the law that sometimes he himself had followed in the past. And a uh, great example of that with Massachusetts v. EPA case from back in the Bush administration, which makes no sense in administrative law. This is where uh, the, the court sort of opened the floodgates for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, even though it was the Clean Air Act was enacted to deal with acid rain. Um, but it was a kind of politically correct hissy fit, uh, basically, and Justice Kennedy was in the 5-4 majority there. And that, I think, those, those days are hopefully going to be over. Yeah, they, uh, well, we will we will see if they're over, if they're curtailed, or if we're just on a trajectory that is different. It sometimes takes 70 years to undo this, right? You teach progressivism. This got underway in the 1910s. It's, it's 120 years later. If we just get started, if we just change the trajectory towards accountability, then I'm an optimist. Do you share that, that view that if we just can get a reorientation will be in I a do. better way. And it's you're absolutely right to emphasize that that it, it's a long it's a long game. It took the progressives a good hundred years to have the effect that they have had on our government. And so we're not going to overturn that in an election cycle or two. Uh, we get on the right trajectory and uh, uh, I think I would share your optimism. Always Dean Pistrino, great to have a Hillsdale College person with us. Great to have you here. And Brett Kavanaugh, we cannot wait for you to get where we need you to be on the Supreme Court.